0: On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Carl Truman about Karl Marx. And we cover topics like who is Marx, what is Marxism, what is cultural Marxism, and how relevant is it to evangelicalism in general. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for future episodes, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at the Now, for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly, uh, particularly about theological issues and all things related to that. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today we're going to be discussing the topic of Marx and Marxism, a topic that I am not readily informed on, though apparently I should be by the amount of times I see people referencing it and throwing Marx under the bus or Marxism under the bus. So I'm really looking forward to introduce our guest today, Dr. Carl Truman. It's it's really a privilege to introduce him as I, he's a theological role model of mine of sorts. Um, it's really hard to calculate the exact level of impact he's had on my own life, beginning with numerous, numerous books and even his, church, his medieval church history lectures. They were on iTunes U., before I went to seminary, like 10 years ago, uh, introduced me to classical theism. So among various other topics, and it really, it it introduced me to a lot of things that I had not not previously been introduced to. So uh, I'm really indebted to him for how he has served my own Christian faith in life. And so I'm really thankful for that, number one. But I do want to, Dr. Truman, for those who may not be interested, I mean, may not know who you are, maybe give us 30 to 60 seconds on who you are, what you're doing, um, and why you've come to know who Karl Marx is.
2: <laughs> well, I'm inclined to start by saying you, you need to find yourself a better role model. For- <laughs> 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 but uh, no, my, I'm Karl Truman. I teach in the Biblical and Religious Studies uh, Department at Grove City College, which is a liberal arts college about 40, 50 miles north of Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. Though obviously my accent betrays the fact that I'm originally from uh, across the pond. I grew up in the west country of England, so I'm a a country boy at heart, living once again in the country, just some thousands of miles to the the west of of where I grew up. By training, uh, I'm a Really, a church historian. I cut my teeth in sixteenth and seventeenth century topics, but more recent years I've become interested in uh, certain patterns of of modern thought and uh, certain aspects of uh, distinctive aspects of our modern culture, and that has has driven me back to to read a number of the what I would regard as the as the major intellectual sources for the modern. Uh, cultural environment which we inhabit, one of whom, of course, is is Karl Marx, whose influence, I think, on 20th century history and 21st century culture is is hard to overestimate.
1: So can you maybe uh, just set the table for our listeners on, on who the man is, Karl Marx, you know, um, a little bit about his background, where he's from, um, what his education was, and uh, then we can maybe move into some of his um, thoughts and ideas from there.
2: Sure. Well, he's a 19th century figure. Uh, dates 1818 to 1883. Uh, I was amused, I think, when, uh, Jordan, you, you said that uh, you, you you weren't well acquainted with Marx, but you felt you needed to be because his name is cited so frequently. I suspect you may be more acquainted with him than many of the people who cite his name frequently. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's not somebody who is widely read by those who throw his name around, I think. He was a, a 19th century figure. He's he's interesting both as a philosopher and as an economist and as a a revolutionary political theorist and uh, he he though he was German and Jewish secular Jewish uh, in in background uh, he 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 had something of an itinerant life in the 19th century, slowly but surely made his way to England because he was involved in various working men's revolutionary activities on the continent, in the middle of the 19th century. Ended up in England where he spent much of his time working in the uh, British Library, which is one of the great libraries in London, uh, producing his his magnum opus, his major work, Das Kapital, often just translated as Capital, which was an analysis of, of economics. But my interest in him really is, is more in his uh, cultural and philosophical significance. He was a kind of... Uh, deviant disciple of the German philosopher Hegel. He never actually met Hegel, but he picked up Hegel's ideas and developed them in a distinctive materialist direction. That uh, So the situation today is such that even though his economics would be roundly discarded by, by most people, and the 20th century gave great testimony through uh, the Soviet Union to the uh, the dead end that is Marxist economics. Many of his cultural theories, the things that shape the way we think and behave in society, many of those are still, I think, helpful in giving us insights into how modern culture ticks. So, summarise: nineteenth-century thinker, socialist, revolutionary philosopher, econo- uh, economist, and an inspiration of uh, for a, a plethora of critical cultural theories that shape the way the world is today.
0: So when I think about Marx, it seems like when I hear that terminology of Karl Marx or Marxism, it's just, he's a bad guy, I don't want to have anything to do with him, but I don't really know exactly why. I know the Soviet Union collapse and all of that goes on in that, but what are really his most important contributions and theories to, I guess, his own time period and to our own contemporary time period? Yeah, good
2: question. I think, first of all, there's no doubt in my mind that yeah, Marx is basically a bad guy. I certainly have no uh, desire to, to rehabilitate him as a, as a, as a, as a good guy. Uh, he was a thoroughgoing materialist, and his thinking politically tended in dramatically totalitarian directions. So there's no doubt that he's, uh, he's anti-Christian and he's anti-democratic uh, in, in significant ways often I find, though, with dealing with historical figures, you know, the good guy, bad guy game gets you so far. But at some point, it's useful to set aside those categories and then think, OK, what insights does this guy have? Or what can I how can my own thinking be sharpened by engaging with him, even at those points where I disagree? And that's where I think Marx can be can be helpful to us. I think if if I if you were to ask me, what's the one area in which Marx uh really dominates in many ways the way we think about society today. I'd say this, what what Marx did in the 19th century was argued that all human relationships were ultimately predicated on, on economic structures. So everything we do ultimately tracks back to some kind of economic relationship. Now that sounds very dry and tedious, but what are the implications of that? Well, the major implication of that is every relationship becomes political in some ways. There's no such thing as a, a pre-political relationship. Marriage, for example, ceases to be uh, uh, understood as a lifelong covenant of love between a man and a woman, and it's seen really as a, as a manifestation of a particular Economic arrangement that keeps women subordinate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I would say the key thing about Marx for today is we live in a world where the idea of the pre-political has vanished. You you switch on the news and and we see some of the you know nastiest political debates that take place uh, take place on on. Uh, uh, on matters and relative to institutions that a hundred years ago we would not have thought were political the boy scouts for example marriage etc etc uh, what what Marx did was he sort of started the way he started the the shift in the way societies think to seeing everything as having political significance and that i think is of tremendous importance for today another area i think where he is uh uh, he, he offers insights, but unfortunately insights that when, when assumed to be an exhaustive account become problematic. Uh, Marx uh, understood that uh, a lot of what goes on in society is a kind of power struggle, that uh, the idea of, of neutral altruism within society... That's, that's not as straightforward as we might, uh, might, might think it is. That often there are motives, economic motives, class motives, driving the way we think and behave. Sometimes we're not even aware of ourselves. Uh, and again, if you look at uh, the world of today, you, you hear the rhetoric, say, of white privilege, for example. Uh, now, not everybody who uses the language of white privilege is a card-carrying Marxist. But but the idea that there is such a thing as white privilege, uh, that the way we present the world, it, it, we think we're presenting the world as it is, but actually we're presenting it in a way that serves the interest of white males. That again is is the kind of way of thinking that Marx helped pave the way for, a, a little bit like Nietzsche. Uh, you know, Marx is a 19th century thinker who only really exerted influence in the 20th century and beyond. As with Nietzsche, he was not a significant player in his own day. Uh, it's only in the, in the decades and centuries since his death that the full implications of what he's been doing have, have started to permeate the way we think about society in general. So
0: how close is just the term Marxism to what Marx actually thought and taught?
2: Well, you know, that in some ways, that's the kind of the, the $64,000 question. The, the, the term Marxism is used in a variety of different ways. I mean, if you go onto the Internet, I think most people who throw the word, word Marxism around, it's a kind of it's an insult. It's a quick way of demonizing whatever position or whatever person you want to be able to dismiss. Uh, so there's the what I would describe as the crude polemical use of the term but then there are there are those who would perhaps identify more as marxists critical theorists cultural theorists and their relationship to the original marx is is complicated because often they have abandoned marx's view of history marx has this very teleological view of history where uh, the proletariat are going to triumph. Uh, The working class are going to ultimately be the dominant comprehensive class and everybody's going to live in peace and harmony. Well, the 20th century indicated for various reasons that that isn't going to happen. So a lot of uh, self-identifying Marxists today have probably abandoned Marx's view of history. What they've retained, however, is his Uh, perhaps characterise it as his suspicious way of reading culture as a way of manipulating other people that is designed to destabilise the status quo. So... Critical theorists, for example, uh, for those of you listeners who are not familiar with that term, that's a kind of school of approaching culture that that is ultimately rooted in Marxism, but has gone beyond Marx. Critical theorists, for example, would find some of Marx's ideas very helpful for destabilizing the way we think about society. Uh, today. So Marxism is kind of alive and well, but like a lot of political systems and, and philosophical systems, it's developed well beyond uh, the body of Marx's own original work.
1: As far as the the current impact of Marxist thought, I think we've already gotten into, you know, you mentioned the the two main things, human relationships are predicated on economic structures and relationships, and then the The uh, focus on power struggle. So those are things that currently today we're seeing um, as part of just the air we breathe. But to to narrow the scope a little bit more, how has Marxist thought shaped um, modern evangelicalism? And and I know it's difficult to even define evangelicalism, but uh, (laughs) it's just... How is it? Maybe
2: just the, how has it impacted the church today? Yeah, when I when I saw that question, I thought, wow, how has Marxism impacted evangelicalism? Here you have two terms that nobody agrees on. On yeah, <laughs> we're trying to connect the two. I think that, that there's a sense in which certainly certain strands of uh, well, if we were to go back to the 60s. And, and, and we look at, at theology in the 60s, the emergence of what's called liberation theology, that would be an easy one in, in the Roman Catholic Church of the 1960s, and to an extent within certain Protestant strands uh, of, of theology as well, uh, where the, the gospel became closely identified with political struggle. And with the overthrowing of powerful political oppressors, there's a there's a, a very clear connection there between uh, what Christian theology is doing and a, a sort of tradition of revolutionary social thought that flows out of, of Marxism. It's not coincidence that much of this happened in South America, where at the same time as the church was getting into liberation theology, we also saw uh, the flourishing of Marxist political revolutionary movements shining path in in Peru. Uh, everybody's seen the, you know, the iconic picture of Che Guevara. Uh, so So there's a definite connection there. If we move to the present day, I think in the last Certainly in the last five years, it's been very interesting how within what we might call conservative, theological evangelical circles, the whole issue of social justice has become a major source of contention. And I think the one of the things that interests me about the debate about social justice within evangelicalism is social justice is very much presented as a zero-sum game. You know, if somebody is suffering or if somebody is disempowered here because it's because somebody else has illegitimately usurped power there or got hold of something there. That's a very, it's a a kind of a crude idea, but it's a very Marxist idea that uh, if somebody has power, by definition, somebody else does not. If somebody is doing well, by definition, somebody else is being exploited. That kind of basic, you know, philosophical economics, if you like, uh, underlying a lot of the evangelical discussion about social justice. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's self-consciously Marxist. It's not that evangelicals are reading Marx and the Marxist tradition and, and consciously deploying those ideas. But if you were to look for the historic origins of those kind of ideas, you're really gonna be tracking back to the, the Marxist tradition. So uh, I think one of you used the analogy earlier on, it's kind of like the air we breathe. I think, uh, you know, has Marxism, have evangelicals self-consciously drawn on Marx? Not many of them, I don't think. Have many evangelicals uh, unconsciously adopted certain positions that that one could argue are, or once upon a time, distinctively Marxist? Then yes, I think we're on much safer ground there. So does is cultural
0: Marxism related to what evangelicals are actually using or because um, I hear that term thrown around a lot, Yeah, yeah. and I honestly don't know, is it connected to Marx? Is it connected to evangelicals? How yeah. does this connect?
2: Yeah. Well, again, I think it's another one of those terms that most of the people who throw it about have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I did a piece about a year ago, I think it was the Gospel Coalition. I, I read a piece on, I'm not a huge fan of Tim Keller. I mean, I've no personal against Tim Keller. He seems a, a very reputable, upright man of integrity to me. Uh, but I'm not, I don't really follow his model of ministry as such. But a lot of people are accusing him of cultural Marxism. And I wrote a piece, you know, basically saying, Tim Keller's not a cultural Marxist. I can't remember if it's modern reformation or gospel Collision. I got hammered. I got hammered. One, there were a load of people telling me I knew nothing about Marxism, which was kind of odd because I studied under a Marxist. Maybe I just misunderstood everything he ever taught. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but the other thing was I was then accused of being a Marxist myself, uh, which really brought home to me the fact that this is the language of cultural Marxism, the way it's typically used in the, uh, in, in the evangelical internet world. It's really an expression of a kind of primal scream of emotion rather than talking about a coherent system of belief. So all of that is to say on the on one hand I would want to get rid of it as a general rhetorical term. It does have a specific history and genealogy though that goes back to really early in the 20th century. One of the one of the big disappointments for marxists in the early 20th century was uh, the working class didn't seem to get it. Uh, particularly you know a place like Germany where you'd expect with a highly developed uh, industrial industrialized society, a highly developed class system, uh, it's ripe for Marxist revolution. But it doesn't happen in Germany. In fact, it fails in Germany. It happens in Russia, where you've got no real working class or industrialization to talk about at all. Uh, and what happens in places like Germany and Italy is the working class uh, don't seem to be backing the communists, they seem to be going to the opposite extreme. They, they're, they're moving towards Nazism and fascism. So the question emerges in the early 20th century among a, a number of Marxist intellectuals is, you know, why is this? Why is the working class not developing a proper class consciousness? And how do we go about helping them develop that consciousness? And how do we go about transforming society? And And a key figure in this is an Italian, uh, Antonio Gramsci, who Roger Scruton describes as one of the uh, few communist leaders fortunate enough to die before he could kill anybody. I thought that was an interesting way of talking about him. He dies in prison in in Mussolini's Italy. But Gramsci comes up with this idea, really, of, of transforming society by transforming cultural institutions. So you're not organizing your unions to go out and strike and bring down capitalism, you're making movies, you're training school teachers, you're grabbing hold of the levers of cultural power that actually shape how people think. And that I think is where cultural Marxism is useful as a term, because what you're talking about there is, is a strategy of of cultivating the way people imagine the world to be without direct political revolution, but, Via the transformation of the institutions of, of cultural power, and that's where I became, you know, I, I, I became very interested in, in contemporary Marxism because, you know, take gay marriage for example. Uh, uh, why did gay marriage uh, succeed so dramatically on the on the public stage in the last decade or decade and a half? Uh, there are arguments people made arguments, philosophical arguments for gay marriage. But most people actually had their attitudes to gay marriage changed by the cultural portrayal of homosexual and lesbian couples on the television or in the movies. And that, I think, goes to uh, maybe some of your listeners will immediately jump on me and say, told you Trim's a cultural Marxist. But I would say uh, that certainly goes to the, the truth that cultural Marxism has at its core. And that is we don't think rationally. We often think culturally. Our minds are shaped by the culture in which we operate. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, spots this at, in Corinthians when he says, you know, bad company corrupts morals. Paul is aware the people you hang around with, the conversations you have, that shapes what you are as a moral human being. And I think cultural Marxism grabs hold of that truth and, and uses it for uh, political ends. And again, goes back to what I said about no such thing as the pre-political now. Yeah, politicize the Boy Scouts, politicize marriage. Um, isn't it odd that uh, sex, which is you know, the most private thing that occurs between between people, is one of the the primary public hotspots of political debate? You know, let's transform even the most private realm of, of human uh, activity and make it a matter of public, cultural, and therefore political significance. So I'd say cultural Marxism is is revolutionary politics pursued not directly through labor organization, but through the transformation of uh, the cultural institutions that really hold the levers of power in our society.
1: Now, you mentioned, you know, the last five years or so in conservative um, evangelical circles, you know, there's been some influence of, of Marxist thought um, as relates to social justice and uh, those kind of issues. I realize this is a prediction and predictions can get dangerous, but um, what exactly, where do you see this going? Is the way that evangelicals, the way we talk about these issues, like invoking Marxist name, you know, just to, as a a kind of a catch all label to is the way we're approaching all this sustainable, or are we just going to have to totally change the way we talk about all this? Because it just seems like, um, we're not really actually communicating with one another when we talk about these issues of justice, because, you know, oh, well, you're a Marxist, or then the other side is, well, you don't care about justice. And then, the, everything just breaks down at that point so how do you see all this playing out
2: i i i'm quite pessimistic about it at this point i think partly i think the media through which it's being these kind of discussions are being conducted you know twitter uh things like that where really it's you, you can't have the kind of uh, appreciative discussions that you need to have on these issues through a medium like twitter uh, i do think you know the danger of 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 traditional conservative kind of people is uh, that they don't take seriously the genuine concerns that many of the social justice people have. I mean, it's very clear that there is a, uh, a terrible and tragic history of racism in the United States, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the church needs to have some kind of discussion, some kind of uh, thoughtful reckoning with that issue at some point. But it can't be done when the rhetoric is so polarizing. Uh, I'm almost inclined to say it can't be done other than face to face. I'm a a big... Um... A big fan of the kind of philosophy that Roger Scruton. Roger Scruton. I don't think he was a Christian. he was very sympathetic to Christianity, but but one of one of the things I really learned from reading Roger Scruton was has been the the importance of face to face contact. That that faces are important. That that the body is important in the way we interact with each other. That discussions within the context of a broader narrative of community and a friendship. These are the fruitful discussions that can take place. So I'm very pessimistic that in in a world where everything is being pursued uh, either in online chat room kind of things or in very adversarial legislative kind of ways, that we can have the sort of discussions that are necessary uh, for us to have at this point. And that's why, you know, the rhetoric of uh, uh, of, white privilege versus Cultural Marxism—they tend to be the kind of, you know, I'm going to fire my white privilege bullet at you, and you're going to fire your cultural Marxist bullets <laughs> at me. That kind of rhetoric—it—it—it's often be, behind that rhetoric is a, a serious and legitimate concerns. But the rhetoric itself doesn't help us get to those concerns and, and to discuss them. So my, if you were to say to me, how do, we, how do we go about this issue, addressing these issues? I think probably the solutions have to come at a local level where real people can meet with each other and have real conversations. Hey, if there's a, an African-American church in your neighborhood you know, maybe the pastors should get together, uh, have a cup of coffee, talk to each other, hear what each other are saying. And maybe the congregation should have joint worship services. Uh, I, I think that the answer to the, the, the terrible drama that plays out online about these things is real people meeting in real time for real fellowship and real discussion. That's maybe that's naive, but I think it's maybe the only way we can start moving towards constructive discussion of these issues.
0: That's helpful. Um, so as as I think about, I guess, Marxism or cultural Marxism in general, how how should Christians really view these types of pagan philosophies in relation to their Christian commitments? I mean, it seems that there are lots of other pagan philosophies that Um, Christians are happy to accept, and yet certain ones they want to reject wholesale for whatever reason. Um, So how do we go about engaging these and using these appropriately?
2: Well, I think that I I would give a sort of twofold answer to that question. I think, one, understanding these philosophies can be helpful as a way of, of understanding why society thinks the way it does. That, that getting back behind the way we instinctively think, getting back behind the air that we breathe to understanding where that air has come from and, and why it, it, it smells the way it does, that's always helpful. So I, I always think that studying uh, non-Christian philosophies is extremely helpful from that perspective. Secondly, uh, I'm a big believer in plundering the, plundering the Egyptians. Uh, not everything Mark says is wrong. I, uh, just the other week uh, in one of my humanities classes, we do a couple of classes on Marx and we look at Marx on religion and everybody of course knows the uh, it 's the opium of the people quotation but if you put that in the in the larger section it it occurs in in marx 's essay on hegel 's philosophy of of law. If you put it in the larger section there, marx is talking in some ways much more sympathetically about religious people. He's not just saying that they've been given opium to smoke by the upper classes to keep them under control. He says uh, religion is the heart of a heartless world. Uh, it's, it's a cry of pain. And uh, and what Marx is getting at there is that, yeah, that religion actually does reflect real needs that people have. Uh, Where we differ from Marx, of course, is I want to say, yeah, that the reason it's a cry of pain is not ultimately material, it's spiritual. But here we have somebody who who understands that, yeah, religion is a cry of pain. And I get the students, I say, look at that. And then we'll look at a psalm. Say, you know, look at the psalms, look at the cries of pain in the psalms. Marx is certainly observing something here, that religion isn't just something you have in order to get on in life. It actually strikes at the deepest it it points to the deep existential needs of people. Question is, of course, what are those needs? So that would be a, another way that I would use uh, somebody like Marx, and I would say, you know, as an observer of of uh, of humanity, it's very interesting. Take the Communist Manifesto, and he describes what industrialization does for. Uh, in 19th century Britain, he says, you know, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. And he's talking about everything has become a matter of, of price now. Nothing has any value anymore and everything has a price. It's hard to argue with that as an analysis of of what consumer society has done to us. Now, I disagree with the reasons behind that, and I disagree with the solution he proposes. But I remember reading that and thinking, I've never noticed that before. Yeah, it's interesting that a highly commercialized consumer society, that's even transformed religion. Even religion now is something that has a price but no value for many people. Mm.
1: So before we uh, let you go, I want to see if we can get a few um, resources from you, um, maybe some recommendations. So if we have a listener who wants to learn more about Marx and and his thought, where would you suggest they begin? And also maybe just a more broad question on uh, political philosophy in general. I know you mentioned Roger Scruton earlier. Do you have any other recommendations for us?
2: Yeah. Well, well, on Marx, I would certainly recommend – there are a number of of very good biographies – Uh, out there. Now, I think the ones I have are in in my office actually at work. But uh, uh, Oxford do this series of very short introductions. And there's a very short introduction to Marx. It's about 60, 70 pages. It would be a, a, it's a fine discussion, an introduction to Marx's life and thought. If you're looking for a popular biography, then Francis Ween's uh, I think in some ways rather superficial, but certainly a fun read. Uh, he's you know he, he he's merciless with Marx at many points, which is good and right and proper. It's a fairly easy read. Uh, Francis Ween's biography of him. Uh, if you're looking for something uh, deeper, then you know to me the definitive treatment and refutation of marxism is leszek kolakowski's three volumes main currents of marxism kolakowski was himself a polish marxist kicked out of poland in the late 60s uh, went to britain and became a, a fellow of all souls college oxford uh, left his marxism behind kolakowski's three volumes is and uh, that's a more scholarly uh, a thorough study of the history of Marxism and I think thorough refutation of it. And then, while we're talking, Roger Scruton, fools, frauds, and firebrands. Is Roger Scruton's collected a collection of his essays on on thinkers of the left? That is uh, a, a learned refutation of of, of Marxist thinking. In terms of political philosophy more generally. Um, I mentioned Scruton. I, I certainly think Roger Scruton is uh one of the the men that I've learned most from in terms of of politics, I would also recommend mark dooley's Moral matters uh, which is a, a wonderful study of freedom and belonging it's 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 a it's a beautiful little book that I think introduces uh, uh introduces the readers to some of the fundamental questions of uh, that politics is asking how can we be free? Uh, as individuals, and how can we also belong to a community? And, and Mark Dooley's Moral Matters is is an excellent uh, volume in that front. And then uh, from last year, a very controversial uh, uh, book last year by Patrick Deneen uh, I think it's called Why Liberalism Failed which is his rather bleak assessment of our current democratic, uh, culture. So I would, uh, I would throw that into the mix as well.
0: So for those who are really interested in following more of your work as you're publishing or writing, where are the places they can go to keep up with that?
2: Most of my writing these days appears at uh, the website of first things, the, uh, the magazine slash website devoted to not a distinctively Christian take on public life, but it's a sort of for religious conservatives thinking about public life. So most of my writing uh, occurs there. and I actually have a, a big book coming out this fall. Uh, published by Crossway, but it's a uh, it's a little more dense than than than, than typical Crossway book uh, entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, where I actually explore the role of Marx and Marxism in the development of contemporary understandings of, of sexual morality. So that's uh, that would be the the book where you'd you'd get the essence of my my thinking on Marxism. Somebody will dismiss it as a Marxist diatribe, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
0: I, for one, am looking forward to it very much so. Um, I feel like you, you've you put out some things in the past, uh, ringing the alarm bells a little bit, as far as especially the sex, uh, sexuality type stuff where, you know, uh, women's sports are going to be completely overrun. Yeah. I remember reading that, I don't know how many years ago you were saying those things and thinking that that was a little bit far-fetched myself,
2: and then here we are. Yeah, and and if I could just touch on the cultural Marxism thing, this is where it's dangerous for Christians to uh, absorb critical theory as their way of pursuing social justice, because the same theory that is being used to dismantle white power will also and can also be used to dismantle uh, heterosexual normativity, Mm -hmm. if I could put it that way. And that's where a lot of Christians who are going gung ho on the, the race issue relative to critical theory, there will be a price to pay for that on the sexuality front. Uh, And that's what makes this such a critical discussion to have, I think. So
0: I guess on the topic of critical theory, are there resources that we should be diving into
2: to understand that better? Um, again, there's a there's a nice little book, Sympathetic Book, from Oxford on Critical Theory, a very short introduction to Critical Theory. Uh, uh, Roger Scruton's Fools, Frauds, and Friar Brands addresses uh, uh, some of these issues. Uh, the work of Terry Eagleton uh, is interesting. Terry Eagleton is a, mar- actually a card-carrying Marxist critic who is not unsympathetic to Critical Theory, but he's more of your old traditional-style Marxist who wants to uh, uh, who doesn't just want to destabilize everything? He genuinely wants to see uh, a, a stable Marxist society established, and so he's interestingly useful in in hitting uh, um, hitting the excesses of critical theory. And I would recommend his uh, two of his works, "The Illusions of Postmodernism." and After Theory as two works written by a Marxist that will actually provide readers with some ammunition for handling the radical relativizing, destabilizing excesses of, of critical theory.
0: That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing those. I'll be
2: in real trouble now. I've recommended a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's awesome. I mean... you. Know- it's it does seem like when i when i see people who are using marxist terminology it's it's almost like a boogeyman so if you're recommending it positively in any way then you're blacklisted of sorts oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so i guess we won't blacklist you but maybe some other listeners will <laughs> <laughs> at least i won't brandon you. <laughs> no uh, you know, we we do want to issue a huge thanks for joining us to talk about marx and marxism and all the things that are related to that. I think this is really a fascinating subject and I'm gonna go grab those resources myself to learn more and understand it better because it seems like I can't escape it. Um, it's there's, there's no going back at this point. So I need to educate myself if I want to be a faithful Christian in the larger, I guess, cultural sphere myself. So thanks for talking with us. Um, I definitely recommend our listeners to check out those resources. Uh, to follow along with the things you write on First Things and elsewhere, especially your new book that's coming out. And uh, for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Fabulous Confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for 129 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $249 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.